I don't know what we're waiting for now. Anya? Waiting for you. Should we start Wacky Banner? So did you get the email I sent you? About Just what? so you made the front of SF gate last night oh, with this new iPhone? You know, <laughs> I can't even talk about that. <laughs> I'm, I'm without words. Um, speechless? Speechless. Comes John, to not mind. speechless. Well, no, I'm just without words. Who was There's it, the, you? No, it wasn't me. Oh. No, if, see, if I had, if I had, a, if I had an iPhone. <laughs> We're just starting to rev into shape here. Just rolling out. <laughs> just rolling out. <laughs> wow. <laughs> This is an honor, sir. This is an honor and a surprise. And a surprise. I'm here to pick up a TV and I'm rolling home. I'm taking somebody with me. Who's it going to be? <laughs> Barbecue, mama's cooking ribs. And maybe me. I don't Wonderful have weekend. Do there Wonderful weekend in Fresno. You guys both come. Are you in Fresno? Yeah. I got a copy of the beer school, the movie. I'm intrigued. Mama's cooking ribs. I'm intrigued. I just got a slot for the swimming pool. <laughs> I can go off the slide. Is this Rosie? Rosie. I'm Nico. Nice to meet you. Nico, have a mic. I just listened to three hours of Beer School. <laughs> Which ones? Uh, the 18th Amendment one and the Homebrew one. Homebrew I couldn't Park. download the, new, the brand new one with... Um, sorry. <laughs> I couldn't download the new one with uh, David McLean and, and Coleman yet. Hmm. And then we also have uh, Homebrew Part 2 in the can. Yeah, it's ready to go. That's where we actually have Justin. Did you guys start yet? Oh, we're, this is recording. our pre our pre start rumble. Oh. And we have our official uh portable bell. Oh. Good. If you guys ride down with me, I'll play you I'll play you the most incredible cowbell solo. You've ever, have you ever heard a cowbell solo? <laughs> no, never heard no. Sanchez <laughs> does like a four minute cowbell solo. It's unbelievable. In what in what tune? Uh, it's called uh, Cowbell a la a la. No, it's called like I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> Oh. He's got a crowd today. Yeah, it, they're rolling in. And supposedly it's being transmitted on the internet, but we don't know for sure. Don't let me stop you. Okay, just, excellent. To... We haven't rung the bell yet. Well, you got to poke me when it's time to ring the bell and give me like five seconds. Okay. Well, did, you guys, did you guys see the new beer board for the front? I did see the oh new beer board. God. It is, is so cool. Awesome. Well, it, uh, I saw it when it showed up. It was still sticky with paint. I also like the, I like the fancy TVs, too. Well, the um, I came to get the old the the three year old um, widescreen projection TV, which yes. cost five thousand dollars three years ago, and is now like something from nineteen eighty two. Did you probably have to pay a hundred dollars <laughs> to have disposed? If you <laughs> yeah, so I came to collect that so my children can watch uh, Happy Feet in, in widescreen, <laughs> so they can see Bob the Builder like really big on the screen. What's the nice screen? So, you're listening to Beer School. We're here to help you and your friends learn to like more than one kind of beer. There's lots of beers to like. Some beers are made right here in the very brewery that we're transmitting from, and others have to travel halfway around the world just to get to you. Learn why beer tastes like it does, how other styles came about, and all the laws that were repealed so that you can enjoy beer to this day. We're talking about the 21st Amendment on our 21st show at the 21st Amendment in San Francisco. 
Is that why the bell sounded different, Don? The bell traveled. It's our the, portable bell. The portable was, bell. Was the 21st Amendment, that, that was women's suffrage? Yes, women's suffrage was actually the 20th Amendment. No, it was the 19th. The 19th. Oh, right. The um, the 20th Amendment was the... Some obscure co- congressional time yes. limit, something yeah, right. Right. Beautiful. January 20th. On January 16th, 1919, yeah. Nebraska legislators yeah. voted aye. A. Theirs was the necessary 36 nod of approval. Prohibition had become the law of the land. And that's how it started. And for 33 years... Not for 33 years, for 13 <laughs> years. There was a I, there was a three in there. Um, prohibition, basically ruled the land. Ruled the ruled the land. Now the crazy thing was this: they had no idea what they were getting into when they signed this law into into being. Um, for example, during During Prohibition, they invented the mafia uh, yeah. and organized crime. Because <coughs> it's hard to smuggle if you're in not In 1919, organized. the year before Prohibition went into effect, Cleveland had 19, excuse me, had 1,200 legal bars. By 1923, the city estimated there were 3,000 illegal speakeasies and over 10,000 stills. That's not even that long from, uh, you know, four years in passing. They basically doubled the amount of alcohol that's being consumed. So much for the temperance idea. Well, you're making more money that way. If you're doing, if you were doing it illegally, you could charge a premium because you were taking a greater risk, right. and then passing that risk on to the consumer in the pro, in the uh, form of increased prices, and then you were able to plow that money back into building your market share through shooting people. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was no. Um, there was no taxes being collected, so 100% of the profit was going back into the product. And so that made that made it very interesting for people. They wanted to supply this because the reward was really great. There was no need to uh, there was no need to stop. Exactly. And the government was missing about I think it was something like 500 million dollars a year in just tax from taxing alcohol that they were losing on. Yeah, we don't have a stat on that, but yeah, there was over the the period of time, the 13 years of the quote great experiment with uh, air quotes, lots of revenue was lost. In fact, prior to the the IRS bill, the the income tax bill, uh, most of taxes was collected in the form of an alcohol tax or a barrel tax, um, or once in a while a uh, poll tax. And the uh Part of, part of how prohibition got past the breweries is for a long time the breweries were saying, we don't need to worry. Our taxes on beer are supporting a lot of the U.S. government. They're not going to shut us down because they're getting all the money. And then when the income tax came around, the brewers got uh, <laughs> the brewers all of a sudden looked up and said, oops, we're not that important anymore. You mean the evil German brewers. <laughs> yeah, the evil German brewers. We can't have the evil Germans influencing our country. Well, all this gets passed, or all this goes away, in uh, February 20th, 1933. Uh, the, the fully ratified, uh, and it was fully ratified December 5th, 1933. So the 21st Amendment is a very simple amendment. It basically has three sections. One is, the first is, the 18th article of the Amendment to the Constitution of the United States is hereby repealed. Section 2, the transportation of 
or importation into any state, territory, or possession of the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws thereof is hereby prohibited. Section 3. This article shall be inoperative unless it shall have been ratified as an amendment to the Constitution by conventions in several states and or as provided in the Constitution within seven years of the date of submission hereof to the uh, states of the cons states of Congress. Now the third section is interesting because if this doesn't get passed by the states, this amendment, then it automatically dies. So this is a this was pretty much standard for anything that was being asked to be an amendment. Right, you have to have the amendment ratified by a number right. of states. And it has to be able to go away. There, there was a little known fourth clause that I think got dropped that was going to re repeal the women's right to vote. <laughs> you're still fighting for that, aren't you? You're Nels? serious. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, the 21st Amendment actually went into effect officially in April of 1933, but it wasn't ratified by all the required two-thirds majority states until December 5th, 1933. So we think of the 21st Amendment as going into effect on December 5th, but in reality people were drinking beer again starting in April of that year. So a lot of the, um, the beer brewing organizations like the Brewers Association are encouraging people to celebrate April. Uh, as the month April 10th for uh, the repeal of prohibition. There's a, uh, a story I read about it. Uh, some guy in New York was at a party and he paid off the telegraph operator to give him, send him three clicks just ahead of when he sent the message that it was repealed so he could be the first person to legally take a drink. <laughs> <laughs> um, Michigan, April 10th. Wisconsin, April 25th. Rhode Island, May 8th, Wyoming, May 25th, and New Jersey, June 1st, were, were quick in passing their, uh, their ratification. And the interesting thing is, number 36 was Utah. It took them December, oh, that was on December 5th, 1933, along with Pennsylvania and Ohio. And Utah today has the, the most stringent liquor sale laws of all the states in the United, in the United States. And they were kind of the deciding state. They were the, yeah, the, they were the deciding state. Nevertheless, they still passed it, so that's good. Well, because Pennsylvania and what was the other state? Which one? The second two states after the Utah? Second, oh, after Utah, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. Yeah, because they ended up ratifying it on the same day anyway, right? So it didn't right. matter about Utah. And so what you, what you also got out of this, though, is uh, all states make their own laws concerning liquor. And so now you still find, if you're listening around the country, there are places where uh, you have to go to the, the state store to buy it, or you have to, uh, there's still dry counties, there's still uh, all sorts of strange laws everywhere. It depends what time the bars open, what time the bars close, how stuff gets distributed, uh, whether or not you're in a state you can order wine on the internet and have it shipped to your state, or liquor, or whatever. It's actually created a labyrinthian maze of uh, legal mess. Uh, I mean, essentially, the 21st Amendment said prohibition is repealed if everybody agrees, and from now on, states control alcohol. And, of course, Tidehouse laws were abolished at that time, so there's no longer breweries that can have any ownership, interest, 
or really relationship with uh, any retail outlet. Uh, in California, for instance, you've got very strong tight house laws. If you have any, any interest in a retail license, you can't have any interest in a manufacturer's or a distributor's license, which ironically has proved that the 21st Amendment has proved to be the, the barrier in our expansion into produ to production beer. Delicious watermelon wheat and IPA in cans. Exactly. We haven't set. We haven't. We haven't pimped the beer yet, and we're sitting right up, up here in the brewery. Did you hear about it? Have you tried the brand <laughs> yes, new watermelon please. wheat that just came on? No, I think I'd like to try that. How about one of those brand new watermelon wheats? Oh, and and uh, during the show, we have a special treat because we have Anchor Steam that we smuggled in, and we want to do a, a side by side with. 21A's team beer. Excellent. That'd be wonderful. Because I haven't done that yet. Can I um, make a little sidebar comment sure. about the 21st Amendment? The irony of uh, the repeal of prohibition, or rather, the, uh, the irony of prohibition being enacted in this country is that it gave rise to some of the most wonderful beers in the world. Uh, as you guys talked about in the 18th Amendment show, there was a neo prohibitionist movement going on uh, worldwide leading up to the time when uh, prohibition was enacted in this country. And in the early 1900s, this was in effect in places like Belgium and the Netherlands and England. But most of the restrictions there were on distilled spirits. So they were starting to restrict the production of distilled spirits and heavily tax them. So the movement was towards stronger beer. And at that time in the world, the people that were making the strongest beers were the Scottish. Because, as everybody knows, the, the weather in Scotland is miserable. It's cold and windy and dreary, and you have to drink nice, strong beer to, to warm your bones. And so uh, a small brewery in Belgium called the Mortgat Brewery hired a very well-known at the time brewing scientist. I think this is about 1916 or 17, by the name of Jean de Clerc. And they tasked him with the job of deconstructing a bottle of McEwen's Scottish Ale and isolating all the different yeast strains. And at that time, I think there was half a dozen or more yeast strains in uh, the McEwen's. But it was a dark, strong, 9-10% alcohol Scottish beer with all these different yeasts. And their goal was to recreate this style because it was the rage uh, coming throughout Europe to drink these stronger beers. So this Mortgat Brewery made a strong, dark Belgian ale made with their own uh, proprietary blend of dark malts and the yeast strains that were found in the McEwen's. And the story goes that one of the brewers from Mortgat, when he tasted the first sample out of the fermenter, proclaimed, my, but this is a devil of a brew. And that's <laughs> how the beer got its name, which to this day we know is Duvel, one of the great Belgian beers of all time. Uh, and the irony was this beer came about and a number of other beers throughout Europe because of the prohibitionist movement throughout the world. So when Duvel came into existence, it was a strong, dark Belgian beer. And it wasn't until after World War II that they actually brought Jean de Clerc back in, who was at that time in his, I think, his late 80s, to reformulate the beer because there was a, a worldwide wave of interest in lighter and lager beers post-World War II. So they reformulated the recipe, and it became the golden, uh, strong ale that it is today. And therein lies the story of Duval. Has anybody tried to recreate the original Duval, the dark uh, heavy? That would be an interesting... Uh... No, but, I mean, not to my knowledge, but that's a great idea. Well, you should tell the folks around here to get on that. Some some local homebrewer out there listening should go out and do the research and recreate that beer. <laughs> No, that's a, I didn't. I didn't know anything about that. They were tr trying to get around and make the, the darker beer because you do get the Scotch beers in in uh, 
when you're in uh, Belgium. That's a, one of the styles you get there, and I didn't know that they originally that, That's where it all came from, is this prohibitions. I think Belgium and the Netherlands made a lot of gin, and um, as the taxation and the, and the prohibitionist movement was anti-distilled spirits, the, the prohibitionists in Europe left the beer industry alone because I, I, I figured they, I think they thought it was relatively innocuous. It was just low in alcohol, not a big threat, whereas distilled spirits are evil because uh-huh. you can get drunk so quickly. I remember uh, reading actually in the history of uh, Berlin, Germany, that in the late 1890s, the factory workers there were getting most of their vitamins from beer that it was sort of potatoes and slop and beer. And beer was actually where most of the nutrition was coming from for all the guys who were uh, working in you know, the rapidly industrializing German factories. It, around the turn of the 20th century, there was a lot of marketing going on in the beer world to market beer as having health benefits for the sickly and um, and even nursing mothers. Yeah, milk fact, stout. Yeah, there's a lot. Milk <laughs> stout did that. And um, I think for a while, Mackeson's had on the label something like uh, carries the equal in nutrition to a full pint of whole milk, which <laughs> the English labeling authorities quickly decided was not a good idea and made them take it off. But um, Guinness did that. Maxson's did that. And I heard Hefeweizen is good for nursing mothers. Hefeweizen is very good for the skin. It's very good for the digestive tract. And in Germany, as you probably know, they often ask for a shot of the Hefe, or the, the yeast slurry, alongside their beer. And that is, that'll that'll solve any hangover problems because it's loaded <laughs> with vitamin B12 uh, and, and all kinds of other, I mean, people put brewer's yeast on their cereal, you know, because it right. helps the digestion and all kinds of things, so... Excellent. Hefeweizen is not just for breakfast anymore. No, it's for lunch and dinner. It took it took Mississippi until 1966 to acknowledge that they were not a dry state any longer. To my knowledge, and somebody out there may correct me, but to this day, Mississippi is the only state in the union that where homebrewing is still illegal. Really? Oh, yeah. that's true. It. Uh, I was out in South Carolina, or rather, uh, I, I, or rather, where there is not a um, a brewery. There's no brewery, microbrewery, or brew pub in Mississippi. Interesting. Wow. We'll, we'll wait for uh, your email on, on that one if anybody is like, obviously you know, to see if there was obviously down. the Cranston bill did not make did not make its way there. The Cranston bill was what allowed home home brewing to happen legally. So up until. When, the, uh, when the, the, the words were being added to the Federal Register about prohibition, they left out two, actually three very important words. Thank you, motor. <laughs> and or beer. So when those, when that got put in, when that cot got put into the law, these, thing, these three words were not there. So while there were homebrew shops and while there were um, people that were homebrewing, it was always kind of a fuzzy thing. Gray area. Can you actually make beer? Uh, well, we don't know. We don't know that you can actually do it legally. And so Alan Cranston, a California senator, proposed a bill that would actually fix this. And uh, so then Jimmy Carter signed this, and it became law on February 1st, 1979. 
and that fixed that that allows this very place to exist. So it was just people were still homebrewing; they just weren't sure if what they were doing exactly. was completely legal. And it was probably a lot more uh, difficult to get ingredients because you probably couldn't advertise through the homebrew shop. Uh, I think I remember reading that it was a lot more health food shops you'd go into and find homebrewing ingredients. Ah, see. Right, for the benefits of um, beer at home. Going back to the 21st Amendment, it is a uh, little-known fact, except in my hometown of Utica, New York, that the first beer sold after the repeal of Prohibition was Utica Club beer from the <laughs> Matt Brewery in Utica, New York. And is, My town's claim to fame. Can you still that, get that today? You can. They sell Utica Club, Saranac, Matt's. Although it's more, I don't know how much they do contract brewing anymore, but that is where a lot of beers that you know and love were actually brewed. Like Sam Adams. <laughs> like Harpoon. <laughs> Etc. Harpoon. Excellent. I've had I was, a Harpoon. I was just at the Harpoon Brewery like two weeks ago. Sweet. Worst beer so, I ever had in my life. There. So now we, <laughs> so now we have uh, we have all the states doing their own uh, their own laws willy nilly, mm-hmm. uh, but we have brewing back. So what has happened? What happened to the, the brewing industry during prohibition, and what what happened coming out of prohibition? So during prohibition, most the most alcoholic a beer could be was two point seven five percent, aka near beer, and. So even though they, the brewers weren't, you know, the brewers weren't making uh, the beer that everybody loved. They were still making beer. So anybody who and everybody tried to, to make these things that tasted good, but it didn't always work. Um, sure, there was there were people that were enjoying the product, but it wasn't the old the good old beer. And that's why you see stuff, uh, you know, where the guys are marching down the street holding "We Want Beer" uh, signs. So, during Prohibition, not all the breweries went away. Nope, not all the breweries went away. They it's, were scrambling to do different things, and were they well, some like of cider some or? of them made cider. Some of them made uh, not not distilled cider, but but cider. Um, some of them went into soda production. Uh, changing the chasing after products that they knew that they could sell, but it didn't always work for everybody because you know it's a, it becomes a, distrib- a distribution problem. You know how do you how do you get people to uh, to buy this? The other thing that happens is remember that there's a world war that's going on, and so sugar is in short supply and grain is in short supply. So you know we don't have the the raw ingredients, and if you do have them, they're very expensive. There's something like uh, only half of the breweries that were open prior to Prohibition reopened after it was repealed. And if you look at the time leading up to Prohibition, it would be interesting to know 10 years prior to the, the start of Prohibition, then the start of Prohibition, and then after Prohibition, because leading up to Prohibition, there were probably a lot of places failing as well as the as the Prohibition movement rolled along through different states. It was probably knocking out stuff and people were getting out of the business even before the full thing came down. Right. This is crazy. So, the, during this time, the, you know, the 13 years, they had a mere 2,500 people that were involved in enforcement to make sure that, that 
alcohol wasn't being moved around, beer and alcohol. And so that's, you know, divide that by 48 states. Not yeah, that's like not very good. That's ratio. not very good ratio. Miles of coastline, miles of mountains, miles of Canadian-Mexican borders. What can you think of a current event that is a similar ratio? Oh, the war on drugs. Yes. Also, be uh, and they and they've employed the Coast Guard to be part of the war on drugs, much to the dismay of the Coast Guard. They don't want to have. They don't want to be a police force. Any more than they want to, you know, that that's not their job. They're there. They're there to help the the motor the boaterists um, move move from here to there to here. Right. I wonder what the size of, uh, say, the Los Angeles police force is relative to the size of the agents who are in charge of probation. Oh, I'm sure that there's there's 2,500 police officers in uh, at least in in the greater Los Angeles community. There was a a movement uh, by people, I think it was in New York, to, instead of trying to repeal prohibition, which they thought was impossible, they simply wanted to change the definition of intoxicating liquor. Right. This is a crazy fact here. Basically, they're saying by 1925, half a dozen states, including New York, had passed laws banning the police force from investigating violations. So if the cops can't even do anything about a speakeasy, for example, I mean, they could bust it for being in an illegal club, right? But they can't do anything about the alcohol part. And especially, you know, this is this goes back to, like, the state of Washington's marijuana laws that say, you know, cops have better things to do, don't bust people for this. So is there a way to sort of get around enforcing prohibition by keeping the, their police force off of it and relying on the really thinly spread uh, federal agents. What was the question, Motor? It was a statement. <laughs> oh, it was a statement. <laughs> if, if a city says we're not going to use our police force to enforce this federal law, oh, exactly. it's their way of saying the federal law is not that important to us and we shouldn't be wasting our local resources on something the federal government is, is all hot for. And the mayor probably didn't want to get caught in some... Uh, Pro- prohibition drove everybody underground. It made us a country of, of criminals. And it gave rise, as you guys talked about, to organized crime and corruption in the police department, corruption of every kind. And it, it fundamentally changed the, peop- the way people interacted with alcohol. And now we have um, a, a very dysfunctional relationship with it, whereas many countries in the world... You know, uh, it's a part of growing up, it's a part of meals, and it's a part of something to share with your family. Here it's very taboo, and a lot of this is because it was driven underground by prohibition. And prohibition wiped out the culture that had come before, which was a responsible social uh, beer and beer and alcohol-consuming culture. Right. It's very interesting to hang out with, with kids who come from a, a different country, one that allows... Basically, you know, there's no 21-year-old rule. They've grown up with alcohol in their home. They've been, you know, beer, wine, whatever. Uh, and they're very adult about the way they drink. And the kids, the same age kid from the United States, has this idea that I'm going to go on a bender. I'm going to drink until I puke, and I'm going to repeat as many times as possible. Because the, there's no response. Drink, puke, repeat. Yeah. Drink, puke, repeat. <laughs> but, but in the international boat racing um, 
competition, Americans rule because we can chug beer faster than anyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure that's true. We're gonna have a quiz on all these all these voices that are coming into the microphones throughout the show because <laughs> I think because the only one who's been introduced. That's right. Everybody we, else are just voices. I don't from, even think I was introduced to this show. No. <laughs> <laughs> up. Well, you know, we didn't even say who we were. That's like our our big problem. But we like, rang the bell. We're, si- we're, we're sitting. We're sitting. We're sitting around. Ladies and gentlemen, the great motor, the great Rosie, and leading the band today, Mr. John Foster. Foster. <laughs> My name is Nico. The only way, the only reason I'm talking is because I'm the proprietor of the 21st Amendment, and I insinuated myself into this uh, little conversation. We're glad that you have. Because all I know about this, I've heard from you doing beer school. Well, here at the I, I, actually, I, I wouldn't mind telling another story if I'm. Oh, might. go ahead. Um, and it's a story about us, the restaurant, our name, what it means, why it came about, and I think it has to do with what we've been talking about: this beer culture that was wiped out. Because you know, it really was a tragedy what happened to the neighborhoods of America in a lot of ways by prohibition, the failed experiment. But when we were opening looking to open the 21st Amendment. We knew that we wanted to be in a historical neighborhood in San Francisco and be tied into the history and the community and the culture of that neighborhood, uh, but we didn't have a name. So I decided, well, let's go back and look at some of the literature from the old days and try to find a cool old brewery that existed in San Francisco. And I went to the San Francisco Public Library and went looking through all the old phone books on microfilm and uh, journals and other publications, starting at about 1850, all the way up until 1920 when Prohibition was enacted. And um, there were all these breweries operating, but what I found that I thought was interesting was, unlike today where everything has a catchy, cool, double entendre name and you know things are Yahoo and Google and all this stuff. Hooters. Yeah. <laughs> Back in those days, things were relatively literal and relatively pedestrian. And the breweries' names were things like the United States Brewing Company, the Acme Brewing Company, um, the Phoenix Brewing Company, the Standard Brewing Company. We have a couple of our beers, like the North Star Brewing Company. There was a beer uh, named for motor called the Blue and Gold Brewing Company. Go Bears. And there just wasn't anything that really jumped out as being really unique and interesting as far as names. But the thing that was interesting was that I think I counted at one point in the phone book and maybe sometime in the 1880s, there were something like a hundred breweries in the city limits of San Francisco. And by the turn of the, of the 20th century, in the year 1900, there were well over 40 breweries operating within the city limits. Now, I know the, the population of San Francisco today is somewhere around 750,000. Right. I don't have any idea what it was in 1900, but my um, guess is... We do know this. It's 250,000 thereabouts. Really? Yeah. Uh, that's still quite a lot, but it's a third of our population today. But there were over 40 breweries in the city of San Francisco. How many breweries do we have operating in the city of San Francisco today in 2007? Seven. Seven brew pubs and two micros. Right. A total of nine breweries. And so we started delving a little bit deeper into what this really meant. And what we discovered was that the brewery was played an integral role in the community. It was the local. There was a brew pub on every corner. And it was the gathering place where people went after work and they engaged in political discussion and social discussion and discussions about music and art. 
over a pint. They even went there and filled up jugs of beer to take home and have with their dinner. It was really the hub of the community gathering place. And when Prohibition was enacted, that whole culture was wiped out and driven underground, and it was changed fundamentally. Then, of course, when the 21st Amendment was enacted in 1933, repealing Prohibition, it allowed us, the beer community, to start the slow climb back to reestablishing the essence of the neighborhood gathering place. And that's what we wanted this to be. From the name to the decor of the building, which was built in 1924, it's an old warehouse with a wo exposed wood ceiling and, and warm wood tables and earth tones, to the food, which is traditional classic American grill food, to the beer, which is American beer made from local ingredients with a West Coast style with a lot of hops. A lot of our beers are named for some old landmarks and old historical elements of the city. But what ended up happening was this idea and the ethos that surround the term 21st Amendment informed everything about what we wanted to be. And of course, most importantly of all, to be the neighborhood gathering place where people could get together over the mild social lubricant of a pint of good beer <laughs> to discuss the important things of the day. Well, we just got the... Uh, it's uh, For anybody who's not listening live, it's about 12.30 on a, on a Saturday, and we're broadcasting up the mezzanine that looks over the main dining room, and we're watching the ebbs, ebb and flows. Of, I mean, there are a couple of small families down there, and it really is a neighborhood spot. Uh, because the neighborhood's grown up around this place. A lot of residential stuff has been built since you guys have opened. Yeah, and the irony I always like to say is we're, we're like one of the granddaddies of the neighborhood now. We've been here seven years. Yep. Because, <laughs> because ten years ago, the ballpark wasn't even here, and it was nothing but old, busted-down industrial warehouses, and they were having bonfires in the middle of the South Park across the street. Yep. When did the ballpark go up? They started building the ballpark in, De in late December of 97. They built for two years, and it was done in um, February of 2000. Okay. So it was ready for the 2000 season. And now you've got uh, two blocks away, they're building a 55-story condominium tower. Yes. And just all sorts of towers around here and a lot of people living down here. This is now the uh, the central area for stem cell research in California. Yep. The new UCSF has a biomedical research facility here. Uh, condos, as you guys know, and um, they're building a new um, cruise ship terminal right down the street yep. here. And that Internet thing is around here, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we know all about the dot-com boom and the bust. <laughs> the, uh, it's been a, the amazing amount of companies that, that have come and gone in the last seven years. Fortunately, it seems that the companies that are here now are stable and they're here to stay. Yeah. It's a different, it's a whole different thing. It's like the engineers took over the, took over steering the ship again. Yeah. But, you know, what happened with the small breweries, it took literally 60 years for small breweries to come back in this country and start having a place in the neighborhood again. And as you, you know from the numbers I just threw out there, we're nowhere near where we were uh, 107 years ago. Right. But it did much more than that. It transformed the nature of beer drinking in America, where you had some regional breweries like Anheuser-Busch that pre-prohibition, that pre there was no such thing as national breweries because beer was a very fragile local product and it couldn't be shipped all over the country. You didn't have a widespread refrigerated transport. You didn't have trucks and things like that in 1900. So Anheuser-Busch was delivering locally around the St. Louis area and probably by 1920 were sp had spread up to Chicago and, and other areas in the Midwest because they were a big player. 
but they still had a distinctive European-style lager. And what happened after Prohibition is that the vast majority of America's 4,000-something breweries that were in operation pre-Prohibition were wiped out, and only, you know, less than 20 were able to come back and reopen. Because if you ran a shop and the government shut you down for 13 years, are you just going to sit around and twiddle your thumbs for 13 years until the government says you can open again and then start with business and everything's fine? No. No. People had to shutter the doors. The equipment fell into disrepair. They had to find a new line of work. It was only the biggest, well, most well-established breweries like Anheuser-Busch that had money and that were able to diversify and make things of all products, things like malted milk, that they were able to survive. Well, also, if, you're, if your profession is brewmaster, you have no job. You don't, there's no place you're going to go. And you're not going to keep your skills up. And all of that knowledge and moving the, the craft forward disappears. Right. There, there was a small exemption granted for the brewing of sacramental beer. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably... Uh, <laughs> That would have been a good angle. <laughs> but what happened when these when these few breweries reopened is they had no competition. It would take the small brewers decades to be able to repair their equipment, rebuild, get back up to operating capacity, and, and start marketing a product. So the big brewers like Anheuser-Busch were able to get out there and really uh, consolidate the marketplace for themselves. If you had money in the bank, you could go out and buy the best of the small failing breweries in a different market, and all of a sudden you've got that market. Yeah. And they had no, no competition because nobody was able to ramp up brewing yeah. right away. So Anheuser-Busch could spread like wildfire. Of course, by then you had trucks and things that could ship beer a lot farther distances than they could before. Right. And then you get into World War II and an interest worldwide in lager beer. Bitter How about a... Uh, Watermelon wheat. How's Heaven Lights? Uh, well, even... Uh, Let's pick 1965 in San Francisco. There were four big breweries, Rainier, Hams, Anchor, and maybe somebody else. Because two of the buildings, one of the, the original Anchor that you hear about of lore under the freeway ramps, I guess, is probably even bulldozed. Yeah. But, um, and that was tiny by 1965. Uh, the Hams Brewery, the building still there, that was remodeled. That's the big thing down by where the chair brewing was. And I believe it was a Rainier Brewery that's where the Costco is now south of Market. And I have pictures of when they were tearing that down in the early 80s. And I want to say there was another one. There's also an old malting house that lasted, I think, into the 80s in North Beach uh, that's now condos and lofts. So there, I mean, there was Actually, stuff. we have a sign in the brewery that Sean went in there before they started construction. I think it's called the Malt House now, isn't it? Uh-huh. The Malt, yeah. And he found this old sign and stole it and put it up in the brewery. Otherwise, yep. it would have been lost. It would have been thrown in. St- stealing has nothing to do with it. He's, he saved it. <laughs> Legal salvage. It's been saved. But the story of prohibition is really the story of what beer was, what beer is in America today, and certainly what it was throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I, I, I think the mid 70s is probably could be considered the great low point in American brewing, where the number of breweries nationwide was down to I think less than 75. There was no such thing as a microbrewery or a brew pub. And virtually all the 75, for the most part, were regional breweries that almost all made the same style of beer. And the, and the closest thing you had to uh, interesting beer were, for lack of a better call, term, I'm going to call them kitschy 
uh, sort of regional breweries like like uh, the, the one Mad brewery in Utica, New York. Yeah, or uh, Yingling, or some of the smaller ones that held on. Genesee Cream. Genesee Cream, yes. Um, or even Anchor, although Anchor was so small, it didn't really go anywhere, and they weren't battling their product. And you could only get it where a couple of the kegs showed up. Well, look at what happened during uh, the 70s when everyone was saying, when you're in Colorado, bring me a case of Coors. It was, the, it was a big deal to get, and this was even before Coors Light existed. That's right. Smoking and the Bandit is a good example of them, of, uh, of that very thing, of going on a beer run to, uh, to get beer for a party. And then needing to draw the attention away because what they did was very illegal in the day of moving, of basically transshipping beer from one state to another without a permit and without, um, without uh, paying the, the proper taxes or putting up the, the fees that were required. So, in the, for example, when, when beer needed to be moved from one state to another, in order especially when it was being moved through a dry state, you had to put up a bond and you had to prove that you weren't that your truck was as full going in as it was going out. Or you had to have Burt Reynolds driving a big firebird <laughs> making sure Buford T Justice isn't looking for your truck. Exactly. <laughs> so it's a it's a crazy time. I mean this Basically, prohibition, although it only lasted 13 years, in many ways has continued on to this day because Congress has said, unless you change your state law to conform to this national thought, we're going to withhold funds from your interstate system, from your, from, uh, your school programs, or for other things. And so, in many ways, it's like, okay, well, the states have ultimate control of this, but in the, in the sense that the national, the national mind, uh, in this case the Fed, wants something done, they're like, we're not going to, we won't pay you. Yeah, when they, when they went to, uh, to standardize the legal drinking age at 21, the key was you didn't get federal highway money if you didn't move your, your drinking age to 21, when a lot of states were still holding around 18 or 19. I, I think would, they should uh, have the drinking age be 18 and driving at 21. <laughs> That's an interesting thought. Well, I always said that you should have one or the other. You should have a drinking card or you should have a driver's license. And if you get caught with one or the other, you depend, the opposite of what your license lets you have, then you're not allowed to do either of them. But then that would be total, total prohibition on any drinking. Well, because everybody would want to... Yeah, exactly. And that, <laughs> if you're 16? Yeah, if you're 16, you shouldn't be drinking anymore. Oh, if you're that young. I thought it was just at any time. No, 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 no. It's like, it's Friday night. What do I... Do I walk with my drinking car? Do I drive and go get a nice tea? <laughs> no, no. This is for this is for minors. The idea being that, you know, let's be grown up about the idea that the drinking is not a big... Is, is part of culture. Um, it should be celebrated. Actually, like Rosie says, there was a blurb in the Newsweek a couple weeks ago about a guy who's trying to get the drinking age changed back to 18 for just that reason. That he's, His argument is we have made marginalized drinking so that now all teenagers do is binge drink because they right. can't drink. And if teenagers learn to drink with their parents in a responsible setting in the home, then they'd be better off. 
That said, statistics don't necessarily prove out that that's the case. In fact, I think statistics show that binge drinking and number of drunk episodes in Europe where drinking ages are 16 are far more than they are in the U.S. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, but the, the kids from from European com- countries, I was going to say companies, from European countries, countries. are much more uh, adult about drinking compared to the U.S. kids. In my experience, hanging out with underage kids. <laughs> you know, that's my experience, too. Anecdotal. You know, when you grow up with it, and it's it's not this big secret. Uh, uh, the, la- the last couple of times I've been in Brussels, uh, keeping it real and everybody engaged here, um, there's a there's a pub, the Delirium Trimmings Cafe. And if you get there around 3 in the afternoon, there's some sort of high school nearby that lets out and the pub fills with high school aged kids, like older high school aged kids, and more of them seem to be smoking than drinking. They'll be in there and they'll have, you know, some will have sodas, some will have uh, beers. But all of them are smoking like chimneys. But it's just funny. I also found the same thing at Oktoberfest. If you go to uh, Oktoberfest in Munich during the day and you will get get, uh, tables with all of a sudden you look around and you're like, my God, these kids are like 15 and 16, and the 15-year-olds have their their, their moss of uh, of Coke or whatever, and then the other kids have their moss of beer, and they're all sitting there, and nobody's... The, the, the one time uh, I was at, we were sharing a table, some friends and I were sharing a table with the kids, and the kids weren't sneaking it back and forth. The ones who were drinking the soda were drinking the soda, and the ones who were drinking the beer were drinking the beer. As opposed to here, whereas as soon as it happened, the soda would get dumped out and you'd have half a beer poured into Because they were all drinking out of glass time since none of that. Kids get, underage gets plastic, uh, other people get get glass. So it's, it's interesting to see how these things work together. Well, the OBF this year has outlawed children at the, at the Oregon Brewers. I think they overturned the, the, it came very close, but I think the... They were going to completely outlaw children at the at the beer fest. Well, it used to be this great family event outdoor, out, out, outdoors in the summertime, and there's music and there's uh, face painting and you know entertainment and food, and the beer tents are on the side, and I, you know I have a, a a five-year-old and a two-year-old, and I go to a beer events and obviously have no intention of feeding beer to my two-year-old daughter. Uh, they they enjoy being outside, but OBF is gone from kind of letting it be this family thing to making it more and more draconian to the point where last last year, remember, you had to have a sticker that said, "Right, I am underage and I am not... It was like, you know... If you can't tell that that kid is underage... It was ugly. <laughs> it was very perverse. But I heard that they decided to completely outlaw kids this year. I, I, I read that That's they... Last, last year. That's why uh, they managed to... I think they managed to overturn that. I think that's what I what I read. That's it. It's the Oregon Liquor Commission. They're very um, hard nosed, but but we love them because they they like our watermelon beer. I know. <laughs> so I have a question. Sure. I'll, I think I'll direct it to Nico. Um, do you think that this country will ever get back to the glory days of brewing as it was before prohibition? That's a that's a great question because I think the answer is the sheer volume of breweries we probably won't see again. 
just because of the economics and the competition and the nature of the types of fast food restaurants and other things that we have today. Mm -hmm. But I think we have far exceeded in in stylistic and experimental capacities what was being done uh, pre-prohibition. I mean, you got to re realize that people at the turn of the 20th century were brewing a couple of styles of beer. In San Francisco, they were brewing steam beer. That was the ubiquitous style, also called common beer. But in the rest of the country, they were brewing German lagers and essentially uh, stock ales, which were, you know, your standard American ale that was derived from a British ale. But you didn't have, you probably had some stouts and some porters, but, you know, you didn't have box and fruit beers and um, all the Belgian styles all the Belgian styles and you probably didn't nobody was interested in alt beers nobody was really interested in porters very much at that time nobody was interested in Hefeweizen Hefeweizen was a moribund style until the late 1880s pretty much I mean just so many styles that today we take for granted barley wines non-existent um, you know strong beers for the most part not the way they're, even IPAs had gone down to being, you know, just sort of strong pale ales. Uh, so you now have small brew pubs around the country, and everybody's trying to do something different. So they all go back. Well, you got to remember that when brew pubs started, it was all pale ale. I mean, Sierra Nevada started with pale ale. Red Hook started with pale ale. Uh, Samuel Adams started with a with a lager, which was their niche. Pete started with a brown ale, which was totally out there and you know experimental. It was a wild beer for 1986, <clears throat> right? Because everybody's standard beer when they started was an English style pale ale, because American brewers were looking to the English for the cues and the clues about what to make. And it wasn't until the mid 90s, when brew pubs really started exploding, that more brewers started getting into the German styles and some of the more obscure styles. So I think you know breweries across America now are making. All kinds of beers that are—they've—they've they've resurrected these styles that were prominent styles throughout the world in various cultures that were dead or almost dead for whatever reason, and they've resurrected them. And then they've invented all these new things, you know, like the coconut porter. Those glasses look familiar. <laughs> well, John, this is a segue because we're talking about all the different diversity of breweries and the breweries that were common to San Francisco, and you're thinking about a little. Uh, little experiment here. So exactly. I've, I've gotten that ball rolling. I don't know when you want to start well, on we it, should but start I got the ball rolling. So the experiment is, well, actually, the, the 21st Amendment Brewers, Sean O'Sullivan and Jesse, have brewed... O'Sullivan. O'Sullivan. <laughs> O'Sullivan. He made him take his name if he was going to be the, you know, brewer. <laughs> <laughs> have have brewed this beer. Don't confuse these. No, we're not going to confuse these. Have brewed a beer that is a clone of a beer that's made down the street. It's an homage. Oh, it's an homage. All right. Yes. We'll change that. We'll uh, we'll uh, fix Our that. Twenty ways. Twenty one A's team beer. Twenty one A's team beer. Twenty one A's steam beer. Twenty one A's team beer. There's no resemblance in name or quality to a product made by the Anchor Brewing. Company. Very similar color. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> 21 A's. This is called 21 A's Team Beer. I always I always call it 21 A's Team Beer. And I remind everybody that there is no S in team. Team right. or teen? There is no S in team. So we've got we've got glasses here and I think you're just buying cakes of uh, commercial edition. <laughs> 
Uh, where's our Pantone book? Away. Flew out the uh, window. The, um, we would normally have the Pantone book, but the designer who, who uh, left took it with him. Because Pantone books are expensive. And so to tell the difference, I did the, since the glasses are the same, I poured the, uh, the commercial example of the, uh, the, the California common style, not fully. So we've got the head. They both look the same. Wait, this, get, one, this is really good. What is this? this Which is, one is this? That's the 21A's team oh, beer. This, this 21A, they make good beer. This is a, <laughs> this is a grand example. And they've got... I can tell you, though, right off the top of my head, without even tasting the Anchor Steam, that this is going to be maltier than the, the Steam beer. Am I how, wrong? How do you... Uh, Just from memory. Uh, from memory. You know, because you can have memories of taste the same way. Yes. It's actually a good vocabulary to have, is to remember what, say, a plum or a cherry or a, some chocolate tastes like, because then you can... The Steam beer is drier. And has a different yeast strain. It's got a, little, a different nose. It's got a little more sulfuric nose, which is a throwback to the lager yeast that they started with. The 21A is a little bit fuller, maltier, a little bit more of sort of a candy finish. I think it finishes cleaner. Which one? The team beer. Yeah, I think the, the steam beer is a little drier. What does everybody else think? We have a lot of these beers. Yes. We have, we, uh, with the live studio audience. <laughs> See, when you pass around <laughs> bottles of beer, people cheer like the monkeys that they are. <laughs> Jump up and down, do a trick. Free beer. <laughs> um, uh, you know what we're going to do before the show's over? Too? What's that? Uh, since this is the 21st show from the 21st A, the 21A, I'm going to go into the brewery and I'm going to dig through our library collection. I'm going to pull one special thing out. Wow. And we're all going to enjoy that. To celebrate what, What's the in Jesse's fridge? Is that what this show is? Kind of like what's in Sean and Jesse's fridge <laughs> that I'm going to catch that, heat for on Monday. That event actually sounds so much fun. How do you catch heat? So, um, one thing, I, one thing I've talked about on other shows is that Anchor, the taste of Anchor varies. You can taste like, sometimes it's sort of like round and, and fruity, and sometimes it's sort of younger and harsher tasting. And this seems to be, for my taste, about the middle of Anchor. So it's not too much to one side or the other. It's probably a good average. I'm pretty sure that's because they pasteurize their beer in the bottles. And when you go to the brewery tour that happens every afternoon at 2 o'clock, yeah. which is wonderful, and then you finish up at the tap room and drink as much Anchor and Liberty Ale and other Anchor beers as you want. The steam is just beautiful and fresh and floral and aromatic. But when it's bottled and pasteurized, it, you know, it, it's it, after a few months, it starts to break down. Yeah. And it still tastes good. It just doesn't have that fresh pop that you're right. used to. It also depends how it's handled, where it's... Yeah. If it's kept out, but I love I love Anchor Steam. But this this other uh, this team beer is delicious as well. Yeah, the Anchor Steam just tastes sort of um, like heavy, you know, like weighted down. Whereas the team beer tastes obviously because it's just been brewed recently is just much fresher and balanced. Since it's just come out of a pot, well, it's traveled. 
Uh, the beer has traveled about 30 feet from where it was made to my mouth. It's come out of the out of the brewery into the fermenters, oh, yeah. up over the up over the up over the top of the hill, down into. Uh, yeah, but the other beer has only traveled less than three miles from the where it's made to your mouth. But think about it. That's that's a, a factor of what hundred at least. No, a thousand. Maybe 500. And it passed right over the, the motor memorial bolt. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, by, it's where my secret water engine factory is located. <laughs> hey, Turkle Snorkle. Yeah, I think the 21A is a little bit maltier flavor. Definitely maltier and just... This one just kind of is a little bit bitter at okay. the end. This is our youngest fan, uh, Torsten uh, Levine. Yay. Hey, Torsten. You can do whatever you want as long as your mouth is shut. <laughs> That's how I was raised. Children, children should be seen but not heard. That was sort of the mantra in our house. Drunken sailor. <laughs> yes. Well, oh my God! You know, I gotta that? say, you guys gave me a great idea. What's that? Uh, when I was listening to your 18th Amendment show, I think you mentioned the date was January 16th, 1920, when uh, prohibition went into effect officially. Yeah. So I think we should name a beer and call it 115-20, and we should have a party every year on January 15th. Okay, and it's I'm gonna into be that. like it's gonna be like party like it's 1999. We're gonna pretend it's <laughs> the night before prohibition. The night before prohibition, and it's your last chance <laughs> to party gala. legally ever. It's the night before prohibition, and all through the house, not a brewer was stealing. What's that? Stirring. And then two weeks later, it's strong beer. <laughs> and then two weeks later, it's strong beer. Bar. You can sell T-shirts, make a special beer. Everybody could dress up in silly costumes, and we could sell no beer the on the following day, on the 16th. Yes, and that would be, uh, or no, what you do is you just, you brew up a near beer. You brew up a batch of, of near beer, and on the 16th, every, everybody comes in and drinks like some 2% beer. And you let, that's part of the whole, the whole celebration. Yeah, or, or maybe not. Or maybe not. <laughs> or maybe we'll skip like the a, second part. Hopefully it's a Tuesday and it's really rainy. That was potentially bad. <laughs> Two-year-old and a mixer board. <laughs> has he has he bit through electrical cables yet? Because that's something that's always good for a young man. <laughs> he goes, I'm not a performing monkey. Well, this book has paid off in a big way for us. Ambitious Brew by Marine Ogle. You've gotten I how got many shows out of that? How did you get yours for free? Did you write to it the... was No, it was a, it was a gift from uh, somebody who might be on the show someday. Oh, I see. Oh. <laughs> Secret Brewer? <laughs> yes. Oh. How, many, how many shows worth of material do you think you've gotten from this book? That's all we do is talk about that book now. That and drinking beer at um, the 21st Amendment. Have, you, have um, you listened? That's all we ever do. I've never we've, listened to you We've guys. actually got three shows. Yay! Well, two shows for real. And then it's going to actually fuel a couple of those shows. Yes. We have a new guest. That is not me making those noises. <laughs> well, thanks, Torsten, for being on the show, and your gifts are off to the side. 
<laughs> That's brilliant radio. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> we have a uh, photograph. Uh, <laughs> we don't have to be quiet when the photograph is taken. <laughs> we can keep talking while Thank the you. photograph is being taken. There's all those pretty knobs down there on the floor that the, that the kid really wants to play with. So where does the show go from here? Well, what, what's your sense of direction? My sense of direction is we could talk about the other. I don't know. We could talk about. We could talk about. You know, if you pour the uh, steam beer and the team beer into the same glass. Yeah. It tastes more like team beer than steam beer in a 50-50 mix. You have an That's... anchor team beer. Anchor team yeah, beer. Anchor, we just made anchor team. Anchor team. Because <laughs> <laughs> there is no S in team. It's true. Um, it's summertime. We've got some wonderful shows coming up. We know them because we've already recorded them, and we know that they're wonderful. Oh, I know. <laughs> well, Homebrew Part 2 turns out to be a really great show. And uh, Beer Road Trips. And Beer Road Trips was fun because because there was lots of beers on that show. <laughs> that we didn't talk about too much. That we didn't talk about too much. That was kind of weird. Doing a whole show about beer, but not talking about the beer. But we did talk about trips. Beer trip we did. Trips. And I think I motored 20 bucks. You might have. Thanks for, for reminding me. Uh, today we've had Anchor Steam, 21st Amendment Team Beer, uh, Bitter American, which is one of my favorites. The new batch of watermelon wheat is exquisite. Yes. Although I think the beer that we got was uh, still a Hefeweizen. It was. <laughs> I'm like, wow, the new watermelon wheat really tastes like yeah, half a bison. <laughs> so I guess the upstairs, I, don't, I guess the upstairs lines aren't uh, aren't properly connected yet. Excellent. Uh, we've had what else? What's everybody drinking? Who wants to talk about their favorite beer? Stephen, there's a seat open for you. <laughs> I already talked about my favorite beer on the uh, City Beer Store episode. Yeah, but you could just talk more. <laughs> I, I said something a little earlier that people might misconstrue, even though they don't know who I am. This is Steven. Uh, I was a couple weeks ago at the Harpoon Brewery, uh, which is on the wharf, and they had. Um, I would recommend everybody going there because the way it works is every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at noon, two, and four. They have a 45-minute tasting where um, they give you a glass and you can drink whatever you want. And they have generally six beers on tap. And then um, a very young man who is about 22 gets up on a uh, on a crate and tells you about the beers and the beer styles and what you like there. And then you get to drink some more. I was there because <laughs> I was on my 10th uh, college reunion in Boston. And so, when I was there, they had one of my favorite beers that I had when I was in, well, in a sense, learning how to drink beer in college, was um, the regular Harpoon Ale, the stuff they started making in, like, I think 1987. Uh, and until um, the mid-90s, they were brewing it at my hometown, Utica, New York, uh, at the Matt Brewery, which had infinite capacity at the time, but now, even though you can't get it out here, they're kind of growing. Uh, but the most popular beer they have there, 40% of the sales are their IPA. Uh-huh. And it's a very good IPA, but it's not my favorite. But they did have a beer there <laughs> that I found to be the worst beer I've ever had in my life. 
Uh, they have this program, which is great at Harpoon, which is called the 100 Barrel Program. Uh-huh. And they give their brewer, every couple months, they get to brew 100 barrels of whatever beer they want. And this one was supposed to be a Belgian patch. So it's supposed to be like so a lambicky. Can I can I break thing. in for a second? Yeah. Whenever somebody says, "Well, the beer was supposed to be," <laughs> so so the thing about well, when it was, I was brewing this, it was supposed to be a Belgian peach. Susan, my better half, if she was here, would say that she did not intensely dislike the beer. I intensely disliked the beer, but I think that they were trying to get what they were going for because it had this earthy tone to it with the peach that to me tasted like beets. Or like Swiss chard, and it was Swiss very off-putting. Oh. Yeah, in beer, not so much what you want. But a lot of the other people really enjoyed it. So I mean, for me, it was the worst beer I've ever had, um, with the exception of that sixth liter at Oktoberfest. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other story. But they have a Munich Dark there that's great. It's a st- it's a straight Dunkel style. It's a session beer. It's about three point five percent alcohol. Uh, kind of like the Bitter American. It's just you can drink it and drink it and drink it, and it's great. The sixth one you have. Well, let me let me jump into what we're really good at doing here at Beer School, especially me. Uh, there's, I'm going to try and deconstruct why you didn't like the uh, the, the the peach beer because I'm allergic to beets. No, no, no. <laughs> um, a lot of people, if you taste the the Belgian fruit beers, some of them taste you know like you're having some Smucker's jam. And some of them are a lot more complex. And what this brewer might have been thinking, and I know nothing about this, this is my disclaimer, I'm just guessing at it. Uh, the brewer was probably going, well, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna brew something a really serious, earthy, you know, lambic, put the peach into it, and it's really gonna come together. Uh, and probably didn't really get all the pieces right. No. Not going for the, uh, something sweet. It was trying to be something more complex and really didn't put all the tricks together that people in Belgium have been doing for hundred years. But but progress requires mistakes and I think it was fine. It it wasn't progress, itself, you know, I'm gonna translate that into Latin to make that my <laughs> motto. Progress requires mistakes. Mistakes were made but not by me. It's a funny book. <laughs> um, it, it was um, an it was definitely that. Like, it wasn't sour enough. Because when you go to, say, Tornado in the city, and you have like the, it, the relatively obscure beers, and they're really sour, you're like, well, this is what they're going for, and it's a good style. This was a, a bit of a muddle, but the rest of the beers they had on tap were great. So please. Harpoon. Harpoon. I'm a friend of Harpoon. Do not, Let's not dwell in, not on the negative. And, and not to give a movie away, but if you ever go out and see Deadpool... Which is the last of the Dirty Harry films. Although I heard there's a rumor he's thinking of doing... Isn't he 82? Yeah, he's like 112. <laughs> but uh, Deadpool is a really good film because they sort of poke film fun at a lot of the other Dirty Harry films and Bullet and all that. Uh, but at the end, uh, when he goes out to... Uh, when he's in the big battle with the bad guy, he comes out of the fog and shadows and shoots him. With a harpoon. <laughs> he just comes out with a gigantic, like, harpoon crossbow thing. And, you know, I don't think he said, I forget what his catchphrase is in that film. Uh, it's not Make My Day, because that was the previous one, which was much Die like a fish. But, yeah, he comes out with a harpoon. <laughs> I don't think that's what the brewery was named after. Feel like a whale, kid? Feel like a whale, kid? What? 
an another thing before <laughs> I relinquish my time at the microphone is we went to the the Boston Beer Works, which is across from Fenway Park. Home of blueberry beer. Home of the blueberry beer, and they also make a watermelon ale. And being a, a, a person that often comes to the First Amendment and often has the watermelon wheat, generally not in summer because they don't like coming to here on game days, um, it was a very different style. It was a... Quite interesting. Did you retch and look at it and said, what cat died in this class? <laughs> <laughs> it was different, but it was... Because Nico's right there and he's got a champagne what? bottle of something. No, no, no. It, was, it was different. That was an <laughs> ale. This is a wheat. Oh, okay. So just because they both involve watermelons doesn't... Doesn't? But they have a... Doesn't mean that one is... They're different. All things we must good. celebrate diversity, right? <laughs> Progress requires mistakes. No, they had a, a a Boston Common beer that I really enjoyed, which was kind of like the the, the team beer, the Twenty One A's team beer, but uh, a little bit um, more of an American sort of twang to it. Not as microbrewery esque. What am I'm, I saying? I'm trying to formulate like a joke about that overproduced band of the '70s, Boston. Yeah. Tom Schultz. <laughs> it was the heat of the moment? What? <laughs> no, Boston, Tom Schultz. Yes. Who also invented... From, from my alma mater. He invented... Now you know how to find out who I am. He invented a thing uh, that was a Walkman for guitar players. The Rockwell Amplifier. Yes, that you could you could plug in, the rock put your headphones on it, and like... Did I say it wrong? No, it's a Rockman. <laughs> you didn't say it. Right. My, my first, uh, my first roommate in college, he had one of those. And he'd sit around with his little his headphones on and jamming away on his electric guitar. Unfortunately. Oh, oh, it's one of those beers we're having. <laughs> well, should we toast to Brad Delp? Yeah. Yes. Toast no. to Brad Delp. To Brad Delp. <laughs> I saw him in his cover band that he was in. <laughs> What's in the name? In 1995. Damn it! I'm dating myself now. I thought you were getting I, married. <laughs> I am, and, and my better half is off planning the wedding. He's Sorry, out, honey. He's cheating on his fiance by taking himself out and getting himself drunk. <laughs> I'll be home to finish the uh, uh, invitation soon. <laughs> so you're going to uh, seal the envelopes with sealing wax, or do you have a twig that holds the envelope shut, or what's the... Uh... No, it's... It's spit. It spit off my yeah, tongue. That'll seal the envelope. I will find out when I get home. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's always cool when it's a twig that holds it together. I hate though because we're sending a lot of these overseas, and it's like it falls apart in the mail. I have received a wedding invitation from Germany that like had to be put in. An, it, they put it in like a plastic envelope, and with apologies that it was destroyed completely in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> had twigs and and like thumbtacks. Thank tacks you, and sir. Thank you, sir. Who made this beer? What beer we have? Introduce the beer. Okay. Introduce the beer. Uh, just for uh, the the folks at home, uh, Nico's passed out uh, wine glasses. Nico is uh, not passed out. Nico's passed out <laughs> wine glasses containing a golden beer with a lot of head on it that was poured out of a big champagne bottle that had a cork. And it's called oh, wow. Lust. It is called Eisenbahn Lust. I've got Eisenbahn Lust. And it's actually <laughs> from Brazil. Uh, 
I don't read uh, Portuguese, eh? Claudia does. Where are the Suiza makers? It says uh, that the Eisenmann Lust is a premier beer of Brazil made in the champagne method, which means it has a, a secondary fermentation in the bottle. It's 11.5% alcohol. It's golden in color. It smells it does like not apple, indicate that there's any kind of fruit or anything like that in there. It looks like an absolutely lovely um, Belgian, possibly triple. It's delicious. It tastes very similar to the... Uh, That's true, John. No, yes. I was remembering which this. Say what it is. It's a triple, but I was I got confused whether it was Tweezo Twipple or whether it was. It's more like a Carmelite. It's really yeah. sweet. Yeah. It's not a very dry, spicy triple. Woo. It's actually a. It's a. It doesn't have that real Belgian flavor. It has a real candy sweetness to it. Yeah. It doesn't have a little bite. The little ink at the end. Let's see if I can figure the rest of this. So out. where did where did this how did this bottle find its way into the brewery fridge? That I have no idea. Um, in, in fact, I, there is a fallen soldier on the way to this bottle. Oh. Basically, all of our library collection is stored in five or six or eight or ten milk crates, and they're all stacked up underneath the serving tanks. So they're virtually impossible to get to without taking everything out, all the kegs and stuff. So I'm back there, kind of fishing around. And I ended up dropping a 12-ounce bottle that was wrapped in bubble wrap, and it exploded on the floor. And I looked up the lab- picked up the label, and it said it was a, a raspberry porter. So I'm not sure whose raspberry porter it was, but Sean or Jesse, if you're listening, Oops. sorry, don't have a heart attack. <laughs> so the answer to your question is, I don't have any idea. It's probably some revered beer that was given to our brewer by his great-grandmother on her deathbed in 1953, <laughs> and um, I'm going to catch hell for opening it. No, but you're not. We have you, you got us to back We're all going to enjoy it. <laughs> well, cheers. Thank you. I'm enjoying it. This, this, cheers. Cheers. This disproves my theory. When Sean's away, Nico will play? No, but <laughs> I have not had a good beer in South America. Okay, I'm going to read this. This is a very good beer in South America. I, I can actually make a good amount of this off, uh, amount of this out. As I said, Eisenbahn Lust is a, is a premier beer um, from Brazil, produced in the Champagne Method. It is fermented naturally in, in the brewery, and then the liquid is sent to a winery, the winery San Michel where it spends three months in a traditional process producing the champagne bubbles. So they send it to a, a champagne... Uh, Bubble factory, where they build uh, bubbles. Winery, <laughs> where they actually employ the method champenoise. And so I also assume this is, this is riddled in the rack so it, the sediment doesn't settle? Yeah, the, the sediment is pulled out of the neck. The yep. neck is probably frozen, frozen under nitrogen. The sediment is pulled out. I'm looking. This is one of those beers that you give to people that don't that say they yeah. don't like beer. John Foster, I gotta get on one knee and hold my cranium. Hold on a second. <laughs> John Foster said just said something incredibly enlightening, that, and he's right on. This is the kind of beer you give to somebody who says they don't like beer. Oh yeah. Because there's nothing not to like about this. This is a. Uh... <laughs> The whole experience of this, the the 
it doesn't it doesn't have that bitey beer flavor mm. in the beginning, and it finishes clean like a champagne. That's beautiful. The it's whole the whole not taste too sweet. Yeah, not too sweet. Just nice. And since our mission statement here at Beer School is to get people who are drinking just run-of-the-mill beer to try something different, not that they're ever going to find this. Yeah, this go would down be a to your local market step. and ask <laughs> for the Brazilian Eisenbach Lust beer. Well, actually, I'm wondering if this is... We had another beer by these guys uh, that you can get at City Beer Store, which was the strange... Doppelbach, with the parrot and the train on the label. Uh, yeah, that was good. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because the reason I bought it was because it said Eisenbahn. And it had a parrot and a train, train. on it. <laughs> and it had a picture in German. Eisenbahn is... Oh, really? So yeah. this is the Lust Train. The Lust Train. We're drinking out of the Lust... We're drinking on the Lust Train. On the Lust Train. On the Lust Train. <laughs> we made a beer here called Blind Lust, as some of you may remember delicious. back in um, Strong Beer Month. But that was a uh, raspberry Belgian-style beer aged in oak. Right. This seems to be a fairly standard Belgian-style triple or sweet or, it or turns Belgian out, gold ale that's done in the Metho Champenois. It generates a lust for life, I think is what they're it talking about. It turns out that there's a blind lust oak barrel down in the brewery right now. I'm sure there is. <laughs> and uh, it's getting better as it... We have lots of secrets. The goal of storing things is not to make it worse. It's on Wikipedia. <laughs> oh, really? Icebond is on Wikipedia? Excellent. It doesn't really have much info. But it exists. They don't mention those. Wow. They make it close, though. We need to put a remote mic on you. <laughs> I mean, you can read the Big and Push, Rauchbier, Weizenbach. It's all Reinheitsgebot. They're um, they just started importing to the U.S. Field trip. Field trip to Brazil. I smell a field, field trip, trip to Brazil. Have you got the corporate jet? We yet? haven't even taken our first field trip. Feedback. <laughs> no, but we are going on the 10-year anniversary party celebration tour to Belgium, right? Yes, we are. That's right. right? Yeah. When is we're. It's uh, um, three years. Three, three, years, three years from now. The idea is, at the end of the party, we all get on a pour ourselves onto a plane and uh, start the festivities all over again. No, you know how exactly. you, you know how you you, you really hit the high spot, but uh, on a trip to Belgium for beer, you take the train to Cologne and Dusseldorf and have decent beer. Oh, we'll definitely do that. <laughs> oh, that sounds fun. <laughs> Because you know, three days of Belgian. In fact, beer we could does we could in. just fly to London, spend a couple days there, and then take the channel to Belgium, yes. spend a couple days there, then shoot over to Köln and Dusseldorf, and then make our way back to London. Is that doable? It's all doable. That's how I roll. I don't think I want to wait for three years. I want to do that. I want to do that now too. But <laughs> unfortunately, we have to wait for three years. For, but don't do forget for the, the second annual beer bus happening in October. Don't forget that. Where are we going this time? We're going towards TBD. Set. Yeah, TBD. But there, uh, there's possibly a the eastern route, possibly the southern route, the southern route, possibly the beachside route. The beachside. Excellent. Or we could just drive around the city on Muni. You know, you can. <laughs> you can actually. Nobody does it, but you can rent a Muni bus. 
And I've actually, you can. I've, consi- I've considered it. How can I you do that's that? That's the way. Why not just the one meeting? of those fake cable cars on wheels that pulls Party up trolling. The, the problem, the problem with the Muni bus, if you're going anywhere except around San Francisco, is there's no toy toy. The nice thing about that getting the real bus is the toy toy, which becomes uh, necessary after seven or eight gallons of beer. Yes. And they have comfy seats where you can take a little nappy poo, as John Foster and I can attest from the last beer bus. I was standing in Marin Brewing Company. The next thing I know, I'm at 21A. How did that happen? <laughs> well, we're showing an encore video of the beer bus movie in uh, Fresno this evening. That is a worth, that is a that is a movie worth traveling to Fresno to see. You've ninety per, you've ninety percent convinced me. You've ninety percent convinced me. As long as we're not responsible for bringing it down those stairs, I'll get it in the car. I got get watermelon beer on tap. I got I'm a good full with the rest of it. Beer at home. Let's I'm do good, it. I'm good Perfect. with the rest of it. So Rosie, tell us a beer story. A beer story. Um, once upon a time, all good stories start once upon a time. Once upon a time. My uncle brought home hair of the dog, and it was the most strangest taste I've ever tasted. But I, I drank it, and I hated it, but now I like it. Which hair of the dog was it? Fred. Many, many lost weekends enjoying <laughs> Fred. As I say, usually my drunkest night of the year has been the uh, Friday of the Brewers Festival up in Oregon, which is coming up. Everybody booked their plane tickets um, at the Hair of the Dog party in the afternoon that just leads into, like, by the end of the night. Um, Last year, we stayed at Edgefield on Thursday night. Yes. And then Friday morning is the Brew-Am at Edgefield, which is uh, a fundraiser for... Uh, the Glen Hay Falconer Foundation, which is for any aspiring home brewers out there, this is a foundation that will send you to professional brewing school at the Siebel Institute in Chicago for free. So look up Glen Hay Falconer on Google and apply for their program. It's a really a wonderful program. But Glen Hay Falconer was a brewer in Oregon who died prematurely, and his brother Quentin set up this foundation to raise money to provide brewing scholarships to aspiring brewers across the country. And one of their fundraising events is this Brew-Am that they do on Friday morning of the OBF at Edgefield in, um, in Troutdale. And every brewery, uh, it's a nine-hole course, it's a three-par course, you play scramble, but breweries sponsor holes. So picture Edgefield, which is we call Disneyland for drunks. They have a brewery on premises, a winery on premises, and a distillery on premises. And a golf course. But and no a roller coaster. Course, and an outdoor amphitheater where they have live music Thursday nights. And they have about seven different bars. Some is no larger than the closet in your bedroom. Some as big as um, was a movie house. They have live movie. They have movies inside where you can get a pint of beer and watch a movie. But more to the point, uh, you do some drinking, and then you get up at 7.30 in the morning to go play golf at 8, and every hole is sponsored by a brewer. And the first hole we played last year, which I think was hole number three at 8.12 a.m. on a gray Oregon morning in July, was sponsored by Hair of the Dog Brewery. And it was his new double IPA or some such. So... At 8.40 in the morning, drinking a 12.3% alcohol beer from Hair of the Dog before you play golf, 
just kind of hits the spot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Speaking of hair of the dog. <laughs> it's fun. If you haven't heard me say it often enough, Oregon Brewers Festival, the only festival to go to. And if you want to see Motor there... He, he commands a corner of the Ringler's Annex for about <laughs> six hours on Saturday from, you know, four in the afternoon until midnight, so. It's a great time. It's a wonderful time. You sit around, and it, the, the Ringler's Annex, it's one of the, another one of the McMinimum's pubs. It's underground. It's lit by candles. And uh, strangely, we, we haven't done surviving a beer festival yet. Oh, uh, we're going to do but, that. But I'm going gonna, 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 gonna to toss off one of the little... Uh, one of the hints of surviving a beer festival for some people is when you're tired of drinking beer, they make a really nice, uh, 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 now I just completely blank, a grapefruit drop. It's a lemon drop made with fr- freshly squeezed grapefruit juice. That's good. Uh, which is a good summertime drink. Uh, but it's just a fantastic place to hang out. And after waiting in line for beer at the festival, it's nice to sit down and have somebody bring you beer, or in some place where you're just not lined up to get the beer from the person. But it's across the street from the famous Powell's Bookstore. Yes. And it's across the street from the old Henry Weinhardt Brewery. And the Gate Disco. And the Gate Disco, (laughs) which Motor enjoys after hours. Isn't that redundant? Because everybody's happy there. Hey, why are we throwing yeah. disco under the bus? I know. I heard it a couple weeks ago. John Foster. Yeah. <laughs> John's found something shiny that's taken up all of his time. That's a, that's a stout with a paper stout holder. <laughs> if you come to the OBF and you look for the watermelon posse, be sure and ask for your complimentary watermelon fedora. Complimentary. If you can sing the song, if you know the song and can sing it in tune, you will get a you will receive a complimentary so watermelon fedora. We're the watermelon wheat beer posse rolling through the OPF. We're the, the watermelon key is wheat remembering, beer posse. remembering the last line and not not transposing the last. Yeah, we we love you can't it. Flip it around because John Foster always transposes it. <laughs> it's sweet. It's I pink. Know. We love it. Or sometimes you we go, it it's pink. It's sweet. We love it. If you want to practice the song, we love it. It's pink. It's sweet. If you want to practice watermelon, the other pink meat. If you want to practice the song, YouTube. Go to YouTube and search for watermelon wheat. Yeah, it looks like I'm on fire. I've got my fedora. I've, I've also seen fashion-wise, you've got the top hats out now. Got the top hats, and we have some patches. We have some iron-on 21st Amendment patches, so we encourage you to grab a couple of those and iron the patch onto your hat to or identify your forehead yourself. if you're drunk. Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For the folks at home, I just simulated ironing a patch onto my forehead. We do not recommend that you try this at home. Well, speaking of try this at home, we're going to wrap this up from a point of view of wrapping this up because I told John we're going to run this for three hours well no <laughs> I'm, and I'm fine with that but I just want to make sure that the bell goes off and then microphones does can the bell go at the end of the show too always oh yeah yeah so we need more cowbell I just uh, want to thank everybody for being here today Steve Nils all of you, Julie, all of you, everybody who came. Uh, our surprise, our surprise guest, Nico Frecha, publican of the Twenty One A. All 
Rosie, the, Rosie, <laughs> Rosie, the intern who is uh, instrumental in getting us the anchor steam tonight, today. Thank and, you, Rosie. Uh, motor, as always, thank you very much for helming the microphone. Thank you, John. Thank you for giving me a microphone to talk into. And, uh, because without a microphone, nobody would hear me. <laughs> and what a loss would that be for civilization? What a loss would that be? <laughs> Crazy. So we only have one last thing to say, and that is... Class dismissed! <laughs> okay, this is where the good part of it... You know, we didn't do the, sh we didn't do the ad for Gates uh, renovation. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can edit it in and post. Oh, we're going to do it right now. You know, Gates Renovation is looking for lead carpenters and project managers. That's Gates Renovation with one N. And if you're looking for really, really good beer, in, and you're in San Francisco, come to 563 Second Street. 563 Second Street? 563 Second Street is where you can find amazingly good beer. <laughs> And taken home in a can. So now, now that beer school's over, it's time for 356 Talk with Mills Levine. <laughs> Welcome Ooh. to the microphone, Mr. Levine. Why, thank you. I'm going to, uh, you know... Uh, You're going to go over and do something. I'm going to go. Um, we're going to take a, a, a three-second break. One, one thousand. Two, two thousand. Three, one thousand. So what's... Duh. What's new in the world of 356s? Well, I was uh, considering putting in seatbelts. Seatbelts? Wouldn't that destroy the value of the car? Well, actually, seatbelts were an option on that car in 1962. So you can put in reproduction seatbelts that would be true to the car, although, of course, it's not necessary. Now, uh, since we're looking at, uh, I believe that uh, your 356 is uh, gray on the outside and green on the inside. That it is, Motor. Were all of the uh, were all the seatbelts a common color, or did they match the interior upholstery? And have you researched this yet? Um, I believe there was more than one seatbelt color, but it wasn't as if there was a particular seatbelt uh, and interior color specific coordination. I think there was a black seatbelt, and there might have been actually might even go by year. Um, because on the earlier 356s, the knobs, the Bakelite knobs, um, were a tan or an off-white, I should say, an ivory. I think they were made from real elephant tusks, actually. They were imported <laughs> that's from, why they're, they're from no uh, Weirdo Vista, actually. I was going to say that's why there are no more elephants around Stuttgart. Exactly. Because that's they why they moved took all their tusks. in the first place. Yeah. So um, your choice, if you're doing a, a really correct restoration... Uh, what color would you choose, or what are your options? Well, I know for my year, and I know from the seatbelts that I would put in, they would be black. Black. Okay. Uh, what so year what, is that? This is a 1962. It's an early T6 uh, 356B. Yeah. Picked up at the factory in Zuffenhausen by his father. Right. It don't get more real than that, baby. <laughs> He's got a picture of it. We've, we've taken a number of beer tours in the 356. We have indeed. Do you have a picture on you right now? I do not have a picture on me right now, I laugh. If you want to feel like you're in the smallest thing on the road, especially if you get out on the interstate, ride in a 356. Well, the shame is that it's, it's good for uh, two people because uh, I can put Torsten next to me and we can drive around or my wife and I. Can, can drive around. And there are these little jump seats in the back, which, of course, I sat in when I was a child. Um, of course. Back when in, individual responsibility meant something in this great country. 
Uh, but it is possible to retrofit the back seat for a seat belt. So I have this great uh, image of my putting in a lap belt in back so that I can hoist Torsten into his little portable uh, portable car seat, which they actually make, and is very, very um, a very useful thing to have as with a small child if you don't want to be the dork who's walking down the middle of the airport with thousands of big plastic baby safety items. <laughs> it's the little tiny sort of flat thing that is technically legal but looks really unsafe, but as I said, it's technically legal, so who cares? <laughs> so we should be able to strap one of those in the back of the 356. And that's basically being strapped to the engine, so I figured Torsten will just be vibrated to sleep. And, um, the three of us. And it's can, warm. It's very warm. Oh, right to sleep. Yeah, so you should have a good time. That's my thought on the matter. Although I do have another thought. There's another car that I'm very interested in. Um, I've heard about that. You're, you're looking at the. You're trying to get the balance of power for World War II worked out. Exactly. <laughs> One of the ideas is, is I know you and your mother have a special uh, evening planned every week where you watch the Inspector Lindley mysteries together. <laughs> Of course, yes, we sit around and I trim her toenails. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Inspector Lindley drives a wonderful British automobile called a Bristol, which is handmade with a Chrysler uh, engine and drivetrain. Uh, so it is something that you could, in theory, import to this country and have uh, worked on quite well. The really interesting thing is uh, the, the car that I'm really interested in would be a 400 series Bristol, which was made any time from the late 50s through, I think, 1969. And they came out with a 70s model that looks kind of bunk. Um, <laughs> But uh, so any of the 400 series made in the 60s are just beautiful cars. And it's one of those things where you'd never notice it, which is what I love. Uh, you just see this car, and it's uh, got virtually no uh, badges on it. No stinking badges, that is. No stinking badges. <laughs> Here he goes, what is that attractive car? Exactly. Those in the know. Only those in the know. The rest would just not really Well, that's why it. we're doing 356 talk here exactly. today. Exactly. As an addendum to beer school. The shocking thing about <laughs> it, because I was looking at one of the original purchase prices, in 1962, your 356 cost somewhere in the $3,000 range. That now, was a lot. You have to imagine that a well-equipped American car probably ran you 1000 to 1200 Yeah. The Bristol was a $12,000 car in 1963. <laughs> well, my brother just bought my dad a 62 Ford Galaxy. Ooh, probably about like the same that. weight as the uh, Bristol. I'm sure it is. There's another car you're looking at. The uh, oh, there would be. Uh, I just got a call. The two seater. The other two seater. The other two seater. But I, I don't know if I want to say too much because this would be. Uh, this would get us into the talk about wine. Oh yeah. And by the way, there were a couple of uh, wrong uh, not, show. A couple of uh, points to be made earlier that uh, wineries suffered the exact same problems that breweries <laughs> did, probably p potentially more so because vineyards have to be tended. And in theory, once prohibition was lifted, I'm not really the expert here. You could, in theory, just import all the materials to brew beer and start brewing beer, whereas dead vines have to be planted and grown again. Right. So the wineries that were able to flourish immediately after prohibition in this country, if I understand correctly, are, as we are talking about, turning to alternative um, alternative uh, 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 streams of income for breweries that was malted milk. 
certain wineries actually were able to stay in business with contracts to 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 sorry to the pope to, to yeah to make sac- <laughs> sacramental wine. Right. So uh, my evil twin Skippy, who was here earlier, had made this little jab about breweries that were able to stay in business by making sacramental beer. And uh, so, not to not to put the beautiful fine point uh, and hammer the point over the head, uh, that was the alliteration, the illusion, I should say. Delusion. There. The other the other point that he made is that there, are, in some academic circles, there are parallels drawn between the uh, onset of prohibition and women's suffrage. Women's suffrage, by the way, is uh, the right for women to vote. And as an aside, the reason I specifically say that is there was this great show called The Man Show a few years. Years ago, and one of their brilliant sketches, they went on the streets of LA trying to get women to sign petitions to end women's suffrage. And they got an awful lot of signatures because, of course, it sounds like such a terrible thing. And women's suffrage now, we have to put a stop to this. Oh, yes, you're absolutely right. Anyway, enough for the aside. Um, Women's suffrage was closely closely associated (laughs) with uh, the temperance movement. They're stealing a TV right now. They're, they're, they're yeah, distract, this is the whole idea of the show. Distract them <laughs> so they can steal the television. I, of course, one of the people stealing the television is the owner, so clearly the restaurant's about to go out of business. <laughs> Get it? So, so the, the, the argument is that uh, because women's suffrage and the temperance movement were so closely tied that once women got the right to vote, that was one of the uh, influencing factors towards the rise of prohibition. So any of the early Earlier uh, quips that may have sounded misogynistic, not that they ever possibly could have been, was, was really an allusion to the idea of the tying in of prohibition and the temperance movement and women's suffrage. Brilliant. Thank you. Okay. So ended the lesson. So that's 356 talk for today. Thank you. We'll be here all week. Tip your bartender. You know, this is this is a test to see. This is a test to see how well I can fill dead air or Motor. possible dead air. Motor. Yes. Will you be in L.A. Uh, in the coming weeks? I will be in L.A. on the 14th of July for a special appearance. Uh, will you be at Lucky Baldwin's at all? Uh, you know, it's sort of up in the air because I've managed to change a flight because I have a social engagement back here in the city that I'd like to attend on the night of July 14th. Uh, and not to, you know, if, for all my stalkers out there, I'll be flying back from Los Angeles. <laughs> what I don't understand about your trip to Los Angeles Motors, there are perfectly good places in San Francisco to get your back waxed. <laughs> yeah, but they don't use, there's a place, there's a place in Melrose that used mint-infused wax. And when they peel it off and I'm all done, I smell minty and I love it. <laughs> like a great big mojito. Oh, yeah. They serve it to you with the straw while you're on the table. That's why there's that big hole on the massage table, so you can put the glass below the massage table and suck it up through the straw. <laughs> uh, I was going to be on a 9 p.m. flight that would have put me to the party at about 11, and then United sent one of You ever get a voicemail from United Airlines? I love United Airlines, but every now and then they'll, they'll leave a voicemail saying, you know that flight you had? Yeah, we moved it to a different time. And they moved my 9 p.m. departure from L.A. to 10.25 at night. And I called United and I said, pardon me, that's a bit disruptive to my social life. Can I get the earlier flight? <laughs> and so the... Uh, <laughs> and they understood. 
they understood. United understood how just dis how disruptive it how disruptive it would be just my social life. So um, I actually got that moved up, so I'll be able to grace my friends with more time at their housewarming party. And uh, that's just the sort of person I am and what I do for my friends. Uh, thank you, Nils, uh, for yourself and your screaming child and your beautiful wife. My pleasure. Hey, have you ever been to Sun Valley? No, but I've been really, really close. Oh, I see. <laughs> like Haley, maybe. Haley. Excellent. Is Fawn's listening at home over the garage? I don't know if he knows how to Torsten? plug in a, a, an iPod. Okay. Bye, Torsten. Don't touch anything. Do you understand those words? Don't touch anything? Especially yourself. It's dirty oh, and bad. You can have that. No, not the wire. You can have the coaster. Hey, kid. <laughs> no, no, no. This is going on. This is going on. I told you this is a three-hour show. I thought this was over. No, Terry, come on. What's new? I, you know. Now it's Park Talk with Terry. Park Talk with Terry. That's right. You got to be, I think you have to be a little bit closer. I don't know about these technical things, but everybody else seems to be like this. About three inches. Two or three inches. I, you know, everybody's different. Some people are right up on it. Back. I could probably talk like back here. And people Motor can be about here. a mile away. And <laughs> but anyway, so I don't know. I've been encouraged to get up here and speak, and I'm not sure what to speak on, whether you want to talk part maintenance. What's your favorite beer? My favorite beer is 21A IPA. You're not just saying this because you're sitting, you're sitting in the, in the house of Sean and Nico, as we like to call it. No, I, I do want to send out a thank you to Sean and Nico because I think they make the best IPA. And I just want to say it's the hops. It's the hops? It's the hops. The hops are hot. And they get me going. And I, I you know, I'm grateful for that. Okay, I've got a question. Shoot. So the garbage disposal is fixed. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason I'm here. Okay. Because uh, is this before or after you go to fix the garbage disposal? Because last time we met up here... You were on your way to fix the garbage disposal, and then it never got fixed. Well, I didn't get it fixed, and I, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't remove it. I, you know, <laughs> motor. I wait for instructions. That's my excuse. I'm just no. When I don't have words coming out of my mouth, you're, you're not supposed to react else, to it. That's how radio works. If I was on, you know, if there was video. I thought maybe I'd have to watch out what I'm doing with my hands. You know, I couldn't do this because that would be silly. But when I do things and things, words don't come out of my mouth, that means I'm not really doing it. Because this is theater of the mind. So anyway, so anyway, last time, or two times ago, uh, I showed up and you guys were here as usual. And not, and by usual, I mean you guys are usually here maybe once a week as opposed to as usual. My count, I'm, you know, it's open and I'm here. Um, and you were going to go out and take care of a, uh, a task uh, being the dutiful, uh, not even really a, a true legal relation. Well, uh, it, it, it will be soon. It will be yes. soon. But it, it was a suck-up factor, yes. I, I went and tried... Well, with hair like that, you probably do have to, you know... <laughs> Which hair are you talking about? The, this, I, I did this, have the little Britney no, Spears one. thing going on down here, but that's another story. Um, no, I, I tried to fix it, and I failed. I only made it worse. And so we came up with Plan B, and I'm just waiting for them to say, hey, drop by and do it. New one? 
A new one. Yes. That's that's probably because. Yeah. Actually, actually, that's that, that is Jaime. And it needs to be in before next uh, Wednesday, as a matter of Because there's stuff to be ground in that sink next Wednesday. And we all know that I'm not doing it today because of beer school now. You're going to blame me that you yes, found me at 21A and kept drinking. <laughs> you're, you're, you and John Foster have ruined my day. So. It's usually John Foster. It's never me. Right. <laughs> so anyway, as I, as I drink my 21A IPA, IPA, because it's the hops. You're not dancing with the watermelon right now? Obviously not, because it's not the appropriate glass. The watermelon is not a bad beer. It's just not my beer. I understand. Excellent. Anything else new? Um, no, I, you know... Your dog is out of legal trouble. Well, yes, he's locked up in the house. (laughs) Tomorrow I actually will be working on... uh, Additional fortifying the fence, you know, the back part. You can put down. spikes at the top of the fence you know. and like barbed wire beneath the fence. And... It's not at this point. It's not to protect the neighbor from Hennessy. It's to protect Hennessy from the neighbor. And uh, so that's my plan for tomorrow. The garbage disposal. I don't know when I'll get it done. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to get it done today because you guys have totally screwed up. Right and now. it's a beautiful day outside. Why would you want to be? Why, why would you want to be on your back with your head under the stinky kitchen sink, or sitting hurting here. your knuckles trying to get all these things loose? I have a trying to repair a kitchen sink story to tell, but it's not as exciting as yours. Like mine's exciting. This is exciting. <laughs> Carpet it's tax got, and a garbage disposal. Yes. We're not going to ask how the carpet <laughs> tax got into the kitchen. We won't, we won't embarrass her on the, uh, what is it, podcast? On the podcast. Actually, supposedly we're going out live. Are we going out live? It yeah. says broadcasting. So See, there, there are two things here. There's that one that shows that we're recording this show so this can be here for future generations. And there's that one that says broadcasting. So people are actually listening to this. Yes. There's somebody out there right now listening. Possibly oh, wait, wait. Mother are, going, why is the actual host is coming back, and I'm going to use this. You're going to wrap up the interview with Terry, and well, i got to get up first. And I'm going to be back up in about three minutes. We're going to talk both. You wrap up with Terry. We're still going, right? And you're going to wrap it up with me? I don't know what that means. I don't John. know what that means either. I don't even know what I don't even know what the conversation is about so far. Well, garbage disposals, IPA. Um, Those are two things that I don't normally put together. Well, hopefully, people out there in the public don't put that together because it can be a very dangerous thing. Always make sure the switch is off and it's unplugged. And make sure the IPA is in the refrigerator before you begin working on the harvest. And nowhere near the sink. Exactly. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So. <laughs> this book's killing me, man. Why? What's funny about the book? Well, I look up West End Brewery, the brewery in Unica. Yeah. And it has, there's a line here, I'm going to read it. This was a risk for a company that had survived more than a century on local loyalty. 
The Mads Brewers, five, 13 years of prohibition, mm-hmm. making malted milk and root beer. Would upstate New Yorkers, people like my peoples, their wallets already battered by a badly depressed local economy, the one I lived through, be willing to spend a few more cents on a new beer? They were referring to the Saranac beer. Mm-hmm. The initial answer was a resounding no. Losers. Saranac 1888 limped along until 1989 when FX, Brother Nick, and other Mats bought the brewery outright from the family trust that had owned it since the grandfather's death in 56. They expanded the Saranac line, they took it to the Great American Beer Festival, and it won the best American beer. Well, there you go. But growing up, it was destitute, and it was like, that's where, like, Stroh's was kicking their ass. That's right. how bad they were. Wow. That's amazing. Okay. This lust beer I want really, that beer, man. I know. That lust was pretty you, you totally hit it on the head, man, when you said it was the beer that you give to people that think they don't like beer. Exactly. Well, you know, you, you serve it as the dessert at the end of the at the end of the, the dinner party, and you oh, bring yeah. this out, and everyone's like, what's this? They're like, you know, they taste it like, oh, yes, it's a, a beer. And they're like, then, there's no not, way. Did you not... Look it up, and then it's going to be. I did. Well, I've been to um, on Wikipedia. They're starting to import it sort of generically, and this is imported from Belchertown, Massachusetts. Uh, I think that is exit four on the turnpike. Um, it's the uh, when we were in Chile, uh, me and my future wife were in Chile. We drank a lot of beer and wine, and the wine in Chile is amazing, and the beer is utter crap. It's like undrinkable. But there's a large German population, so there's. Uh, a couple places that make actual German beer, but none of it even compares to this. And they said that Chile had the best beer in South America. And I'm like, well, that's obviously not true. Well, you obviously, obviously. made a wrong turn. Liars. And, uh, <laughs> I don't speak Portuguese, but... But that was very who do- good. So. Who does except Bossa Nova stars? If, uh, if that were available in the States... I'd buy it. Oh, if this was at if this if they had this yeah. at City Beer Store for those that work at City Beer Store, hi. Um, <laughs> I knew I recognized you from somewhere. We would have a uh, we probably have three or four bottles. This would uh, I would get I because whenever I go there, I'm going there after this because I'm on my bike, so it's easy to get I'm to. I'm on my bike. Well, because it's it's a I'm great location go- if you have a car. <laughs> I mean, so if I go by there because I'm on foot. And it's between 8th and 9th and Folsom, right? That's right. Actually, right. No, no. 7th and 8th. It's between 8th and 7th. 7th and 8th? It's by Green Freeze, right? 8th and 7th because it's a one-way street. Oh, I'm on a bike. (laughs) Because I go there and pretty much I get Schneidebeise because it's hard to find the bottles. And I did move to Hayes Valley so I could be three blocks from Zupenkuche. So now that I can have it at my house, it's like, well, more power to me. But this stuff's awesome, dude. I got a question. Sir, this is, our, this is our quiz question. We always need to come up with new ideas for shows. Give us an idea for a show. Well, I think you should broadcast live from the beer festival. You talk about this Oregon beer festival. You need to have a wire. What? They have they have wires at OBF. If you I, I did a day of planning, you could do it. That's yeah, beyond I, I our scope. Be. Considering how drunk you all are at OBF, I'm sure it's beyond your scope. Considering how drunk I am at OBF, yeah, we could totally do the show without a wire. We could be, we could, we could do. Portland it. does have free, has a really, a pretty good net of free Wi-Fi. Yeah, but okay, yeah, it doesn't need to be live though. It doesn't need to be live. It just needs to be posted by the end of the day. 
But we could take the, uh, we could take the, uh, whose is it? The thing that looks like a taste. I didn't do it. That was a good note. Wait. I didn't touch anything but it the could beer. Be, we could take, I have done nothing! We could take the thing that looks like a taser and plug some wireless microphones into it, and we're good. Alright. Alright. <laughs> have you been to the... Um, when, when I was living in the South Bay, I always used to go to every Brewers Festival or Beer Fest or Beer and Wine Festival that there was in Sunnyvale and San Jose and shit. Have you ever been to one of those? No. Uh, Nico and Motor are speaking okay. in their own language. Oh, well, yeah, like, no problem. Because um, the game? Are you guys doing post-game still? We're doing the post-game. Yeah. The game. We, we have another right? guest. We have another guest. We have another... Here. Here. We, uh, we, see we have me. another guest named Jill. Let me get out of the way. <laughs> so, uh, state your name. My name's Jill. I was busy drinking beer. So what are, you do, what are you doing here? I'm drinking beer, and I'm watching my festive friends have a little lovely iPod. So, uh, what's your favorite beer? I can't pick one. Uh, what I do like, you like? I like... What was, uh, your face, what was your first favorite fancy beer? You know what? It was McKesson's, uh, Mackesson's Triple Stout. Really? Yes. Why'd you like it? Because um, I didn't know much better. <laughs> it it's was good beer. It was rich and chocolate. And then I liked uh, the Red Tail Ale. And the Anchor Steam. And lately I've been really enjoying uh, Big Daddy. And I like the Bitter American quite a bit. I like it just lets me keep my edge. Exactly. Because sometimes you like drinking more than you like being drunk. That's where Bitter American comes in. <laughs> the Bitter American is not drunk, is what you're saying. Correct. We're I mean, trying to come up with poetry or a haiku or something like that about, it, about that. No, we have not done we'll a Belgium show. We should do a Belgium show. We'll do a Belgium show, but... So far, Belgian beers have been kind of off the radar from the beer school theme. From our, you know, our mission statement. Our, our mission statement. It's right here on the wall. It says, you, you know, can we're... Find Belgian beers all over the country now. Can we find Belgian beers all over the country is the question? I could find it. I can, I can get them in damn Rochester, New York. Okay, well, we've had a bunch of Belgians on the show. We've had we've had the, the Pesh Lambic. I've got the show. Belgians 101. You just oh uh, yeah yeah Duval Pash. You could do two that, shows. That's yeah, we could we could do Belgians 101 on stuff that we assume you can find anywhere. We had the uh, the Trader Joe's uh, fake Belgian beer. Oh, that Belgian was good. Beer. Yeah, I'd really like to come to that show because I would admit Belgians I don't know so well. No, the fake Belgian beer. Okay. It was in these wee cans. The cans were. The Trader Joe's fake Gordon beer beer is actually not bad. And it's like actual Gordon Beer's beer. Well, it's, <laughs> but it's not the horrible Gordon Beer's beer. It's the actual okay Gordon Beer's beer. So, what are we, anyway. John, even though the real show's over, right? i got to ask you, what did we learn today? We learned that things keep repeating themselves no matter what. That, these, that we, can, we can go back in time and we can find that, for example, the copyright fight that's going on right now is very similar to the prohibition fight that happened in 1881. Is there a podcast where people could learn more about the copyright and digital rights and actually well the best place that's to one. the best Not place more. the best place to go is some specific shows and I'll be happy to post them in the show notes but Lawrence Lessing which is l e s s i g dot org has 
more information about the copyright fight than you'd ever want to know. And the thing is, is that if you if you let these things, and wow, this is totally changing the show a little bit, but if you totally let these things, these non-dying companies, corporations, that act like a person, behave like a person, but they don't die, if you let them have their way, then bad things are going to happen for lots of people in the future. You know, the idea that we can get pushed around by something... Some paper person. Some paper person. That you can't shoot. How do you shoot a stack of paper? How do you kill a paper? (laughs) Well, you know, you can put a bullet through a paper and it still doesn't die. Fire. Fire. And, you know, the idea that copyright is becomes infinite scares me you know there's no there's no reason for that um, that uh, or copyright could be infinite if they allow for works you know uh, so that it's not a op, so that it's an opt-in basis the, the way it is now is that anything that I do if I take a picture right now well, I'm not going to take a picture right now because camera's on. <laughs> but if I take a picture right now, then I own the copyright to that automatically. Because what if I take a picture with your camera, it's still my camera. No, it's you actually your. The, the picture of that. Camera. <laughs> it's actually Motors' copyright because he he was the guy who pushed the shutter. And so that's fine that that happens, but at some point the copyright for that needs to die. So the same thing that happened with Prohibition, which was, here is a government that's saying, this is the way that everyone wants to act. Well, what happened was is that not everybody wanted to act that way. There was lots of people that wanted, wanted something different. And so while a bunch of people thought this was for the good of the nation, the nation didn't want that. And so the same thing goes, comes down with copyright. I think that that while there is a solution for the the things that don't die, there needs to be another solution for the thing for people that do die. Anyway. And on that note, we're done. <laughs> I have one more word. <coughs> more cowbell. More cowbell. Hey kid. <laughs> hey kid. Hey kid. <laughs> what? Give me some more cowbell. Hit that button. Make it all stop. Uh, At least figure out how the zombies will not eat. Are you in a Fresno? I'm going to Fresno. You're in a Fresno now? I got.